You're listening to the Fifth Estate podcast from the Wheeler Centre. In this week's episode, we're joined by two Australian politicians with contrasting views in the ongoing marriage equality debate. Terry Butler and Tim Wilson join the Fifth Estate's host, broadcaster and anthropologist Sally Warhaft. It's a great pleasure tonight um, to have our two guests here to talk about an issue that, uh, well, it sort of goes on and off being at the higher end of our agenda, um, but it's an issue that I just find so perplexing, uh, so completely mysterious to me that we can live in a country where both leaders of our major political parties can want something and the majority of the Australian people can want something and uh, yet uh, we, we don't have it. And that thing, of course, is marriage equality, which is what we're here to talk about this evening with two uh, terrific guests and a new generation, really, of, of uh, politicians. I was thinking this morning, um, Terry... We're both young. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> we're, we're all young, Tim. Uh, Tim Wilson is the Liberal Party member for Goldstein, and we were just talking about Vida Goldstein uh, before we came on stage, which the, who the seat is named after the great Gold, Vida Goldstein, who Tim was telling me was an advocate for... Uh, well, marriage equality in her way. The, the, the right of women to enter into marriage in the same terms as men. Yeah. So. Who'd have thought? <laughs> Who'd have thought? <laughs> Crazy. I like the continuation Crazy of Crazy idea. Uh, we should bring her back. <laughs> uh, Tim, of course, uh, was elected last year in the federal election. Before that, he was the Human Rights Commissioner. And before that, he worked as a policy director for the IPA. He is a, a former guest on the Fifth Estate, which I think there's only been three people in five years that we've asked to come back for one reason or another. So thanks for coming back, Tim. Thank you. Terry Butler is the federal Labor member for Griffith, which, of course, was the former seat of our or former dear leader, Kevin Rudd, the first and second. Uh, she's come down from... <laughs> Queensland. She <laughs> won that contest in a by-election in 2014 um, and was re-elected, of course, last year. Terry's a, formerly a lawyer at Morris Blackburn and she is the Shadow Assistant Minister for Prevention of Family Violence and the Shadow Assistant Minister for Equality. So give them a big welcome. <laughs> Tim, I just, I can't resist saying, do you want a beer? (laughs) 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 In short, yes. Um, But a no-name brand? (laughs) No, no, not at all. I've said quite publicly that my preferred beer is a Mornington Peninsula Pale Ale. uh, And if not that, then there is the Bad Shepherd Brewery in Cheltenham within my electorate, and Crikey has put out some stories today saying it's not my electorate. I'm sorry, Crikey, do your facts, uh, do your research and get your facts straight. Um, but there's also one uh, from Brighton, which I hadn't heard of before, which I think is Bad Heart, but I would satisfy with a Cooper's Pale Ale as okay, well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they wouldn't give it to me, so sorry. <laughs> Look, for those of you that don't have a clue what we're talking about, there was uh, Tim was in the news this morning uh, for an ad he participated in. I need to stress this. wasn't an ad. It's an, it, it was a video to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the Bible Society. That sounds like... Like an ad. No, no, no. <laughs> it wasn't an ad and it wasn't sponsored by Coopers. <laughs> no, it wasn't actually sponsored by Coopers. It was actually a video done and they're doing a series of them trying to demonstrate that you can actually have people who have deeply held views and disagree without being disagreeable because they're trying to elevate the discussion in, in public debate. So uh, I just need to clarify that because I wouldn't necessarily race off to do, do an ad for a beer company. Not that I have an issue with beer at all. I quite <laughs> like it as my waistline shows. You, you <laughs> poor thing, Tim. <laughs> Simple conversation in Parliament House and uh, there, there it goes. But more seriously, what does... Uh, so, so Tim participated in this non-ad. It's a seven-minute conversation about marriage equality with... Andrew Hastie, the member Andrew for Andrew Hastings, who's against uh, marriage equality... 
and the, it's the, you know, keep it light with a coop. There's a lot of coopers. Uh, and this, w w there was a big reaction to this and coopers felt they had to say that they didn't know that they had anything to do with it because it caused, uh, you know, a pretty confected outrage, I would say. Confected would be an understatement. So what does... I think it was pretty genuine, actually, on people's uh, part. There was a lot of... Um, I mean, I'm happy to still drink Coopers. I was a member of the Coopers Club when I was younger. I mm. love the Coopers beer. Met Dr Cooper. Very exciting. <laughs> um, There's actually a Dr Cooper? There is. Oh, my God, you don't know about Dr. No, Cooper? Are you serious? <laughs> I'm clearly not as committed as you. I, 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 I dislike all beer equally, but <laughs> let's, let's... I want to ask Tim and, and Terry too, we'll start with Tim since it, you got yourself into this mess, <laughs> what, what does the reaction and the story tell you more deeply about mm. any conversation you want to have about this topic? Well, I think there are a lot of people who have lived this debate, and that includes myself, for many, many years. Uh, they think that the debate has been had, that the arguments have all been put out there, there's not much new to be gained uh, from the continued discussion, which I don't agree with, but, uh, and that people just want resolution. I think that's what uh, it shows. But I do think there's also, sadly, a, a layer of intolerance amongst some people towards the alternate perspective. And I got these, all these messages over the past 24 hours from people saying that by even engaging in the argument against change in the law, that you're somehow legitimising and validating uh, their view, which, by the way, is the current law, uh, and that that's a dangerous thing. And I, I find that very challenging, that proposition, because not only is it the current law but it's at like a third of the population. It's not an insignificant minority. And there's going to be a point at which the law will change at some point in the future, but timelines are very uh, open. And people have to accept that the law has changed and they disagree with it. And if people don't feel that they've had the opportunity to voice their argument, because they actually haven't necessarily lived the debate as long as, say, I have, because I've been somebody pushing for change, so I've been arguing it longer while they've just been saying, no, this isn't a real issue, then they may not accept the outcome because they feel silenced or censored. I also think the thing about that video, and it, I mean, I'm not sure that um, the Cooper's issue was really the issue. Um, I think people were very... It was an interesting reaction from people that they were more annoyed about the fact that people were talking about marriage equality and debating it than they were about the fact that, um, you know, you had a couple of parliamentarians in what really did look like a Cooper's ad, Tim, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> um, and that somehow Cooper's would be attached to a debate about marriage equality. It reminded me of when Bill went to the ACL conference a couple of years ago uh, and spoke at the Australian Christian Lobby about why he supports marriage equality. The fact is, engaging in debate is a good thing. We should mm. be happy when people are prepared to engage in respectful debate. Uh, and I think, as it was with your discussion with Andrew Hastie, as it was with Bill's speech at the Australian Christian Lobby conference, uh, continuing to talk is really important because it helps to avoid dehumanising each other. Correct. It's really easy when you're in vehement disagreement with someone to... Um, to slip into not seeing them as a person uh, but seeing them just as an opponent. And I think one of the important things about Parliament, Parliament itself, what's the purpose of Parliament? It's for conversation and discussion uh, as well as for making laws. That's the reason we bring so many different people together so that they are in the same physical location and you do have continued discussion. I actually think that's really important in a democracy. Um, and that is not an endorsement of a view. I talk to people with diametrically opposed views to mine all the time, and that doesn't mean that I endorse their views or what they say in public, uh, but I do think that one of the things that's easy to lose is the, the skill of speaking to the people with whom we disagree and getting a better understanding of where they're coming from. And, and that's a critical point, which is listening and understanding where they come from as a pathway to persuade, because there are people who still oppose or have are soft supporters, and there's a lot of them, who need to be engaged and continue to be engaged about the case and the arguments and to hear the alternate perspectives and why perhaps they're wrong. 
And one of the things I can't figure out from some of the reaction from this video is why people think it's a good idea not to engage with people who disagree with you, exactly for the reasons that Terry just outlined. Because I'm going to make a, an educated guess, and people should feel free to correct me, but I'm I expect that most people in the room here probably support a change in law. Is that right? Yes. yes. Not everybody, but I suspect most. So, frankly, it's great to have this conversation, but whose minds am I changing here? Whereas the key point about that video and this is how I looked at it when somebody came to me and said, should you do it, was resolutely yes, because I will get the opportunity to talk to people who I don't normally get to engage on this issue, put a position that they can consider to them um, in a way that I wouldn't ordinarily get a platform, exactly as Bill did on the ACL. That, that's all very convincing. And uh, all, uh, the only thing I'd add is that there's another group of soft support who are people that have come around because they're just so fed up with hearing about it. So they just want it done. Yeah. Uh, but the, the argument I'd make to that is that, that that proportion of the Australian public, whether it's 30% or 25 or 35, whatever it is, there's a certain, um, there, there are a certain number of people that in, their minds are never going to be changed. And when the GST was brought into the parliament, uh, there were probably 30% of people who didn't want that, probably well more. When we introduced seatbelts into Australian cars, compulsory, there were probably more than that. That The people that need convincing are all in the parliament because I would say any other, any other issue where you had 70%, give or take, plus the leadership of both parties. And, and it's not just that 70%, it's the way it's come about in Australian society, that it's been organic. It's something that people have changed their minds on, if they've changed their minds, they've, they've, they've thought about it themselves. People learn these things in their own families, in their own communities. Uh, and when you have that kind of organic situation, a government should go with that. I, I, you're never going to convince a certain number of people. So what, this is what you're saying to me, Tim, needs to be said inside Parliament, not outside. Well, I talked about this in my main speech, precisely that point, which is uh, that I don't believe in uh, social engineering where the government uses the power to change society. I also don't believe... Uh, in using the power of government to hold back an organic change that's happened in society. I think we've always got to move with the time. So um, on that broad principle, I agree with you. But I think it's also important to understand what is actually motivating different people who oppose. And there are different reasons. Some people have a strict up and down, you know, marriage was defined by God or something akin to that religious position. But there's also a lot of people, particularly in the soft camp, and we keep forgetting about the people who are supporters in the soft camp, who fear retribution if the law changes and they disagree with it at a point in the future. And whether or not that's true, that is actually deeply held by a lot of people who, and some of it's a, a traditionalist worldview and some of it's based on religious Do you mean electoral, electoral? No, no, I'm not. I'm talking about people feeling that the law will be used as a weapon against them. And the classic example of that is, and it's been validated by the action that was taken against Archbishop Julius, Julian Porteous in, the, in Tasmania, where they circulated a booklet which was relatively innocuous, arguing for the current law and that marriage is you know, necessary for procreation, etc., and was then taken to the anti-discrimination body for advocating such a proposition. Now, to me, that was patently absurd, and I still believe it's patently absurd, but there's a fear from a lot of people that the, once the law changes, then anything inconsistent with it will amount to sort of, and we hear these terms all about hate, vilification, being charged against religious communities for holding their deeply held view. Now, whether that's true or not, it doesn't change the fact that they feel it. And part of people's reservation in allowing for a change in the law is based on that. And then they go off and argue with their members, explain to their members of parliament that if you vote for this, you're licensing a tax on me. And we need to recognise that. And that's why going and talking to things like the Bible Society is so important, because you can actually calm that discussion. 
It's also why I think there was such preparedness uh, from across the parliament in the Senate inquiry recently to look at what we could do to provide comfort to people that religious belief or activity would be protected, that you would not be able to be treated adversely because of your religious belief or activity. And I think um, the balance that was struck in the report of that Senate inquiry was a really good one. And there was, I think, fairly unanimous approbation of it, from certainly from the, um, from the advocacy organisations uh, in the LGBTI space. Uh, but I also think that there's been a lot of interest from across the community in that. And to be honest, I mean, we've had, in, in my state of Queensland, the attribute of religious belief or activity has been an attribute of protection under the, the anti-discrimination legislation, I think since 1991, but for a very long time. And there's only ever been a handful of cases. Uh, and they've been things like um, a guy who was in prison who couldn't get halal meat, um, uh, some discussion about um, uh, Catholic schools and people having to be, uh, whether they had to be Catholic. So it's been used very, very sparingly, but at the same time, I think people would recognise that providing that sort of protection in relation to religious belief or activity is pretty reasonable. Um, and so I think if you can get to the heart of what people's fears are and provide comfort in relation to those fears, and that's actually quite a useful thing to do, and you know, I think that attribute, looking at that and seeing how we might be able to work on that for the future is really important. I also think, though, that we can't allow this perception that somehow some people gaining rights takes rights away from other people. It's just mm -hmm. not accurate. It's not Correct. true. Um, the fact that someone else gets to be afforded the same human rights as you does not diminish the rights that you have. Um, the sort of silly arguments that we hear about, you know, my marriage will be diminished if other people are allowed to get married, those are ridiculous. And I think that... The, the difficulty is, and the difficulty that we all face, is um, talking about those things in a way that is positive and not just everyone getting into their trenches and being adversarial and lobbing bombs at each other, mm. because that doesn't tend to be persuasive. I thought uh, I read those recommendations from the, the Senate and uh, committee, and they were incredibly reasonable, uh, but, but they left me also feeling wow, you know, I kind of wish I was religious because the government would seem to care about me so much more than if I were gay. Well, I don't think that's fair because federal discrimination law protects sexuality as an attribute but does not protect in the Correct. same way religious belief or activity. <laughs> and Labor in government brought in the attributes of sexuality and gender identity. It was something that Nicola Roxon and Mark Dreyfus worked on as attorneys general and really created additional and further protections for people on the basis of sexuality and gender identity. And they've been really important. Uh, Labor and government did a lot of really um, useful, um, uh, useful legislative changes that were very practical around superannuation. Uh, it's the same in my state in Queensland where it was the Labor government that decriminalised homosexuality and changed the Acts Interpretation Act to change the definition of spouse. Really practical things. Um, there has been, I think, a move from the perspective of government to increasingly acknowledge that there's been a shortfall in equal rights uh, but there's this one area of rights that we've just failed, the nation's parliament has failed to come to terms with, and that's the right to marry. And I think probably it's important to everyone in this room uh, that we do come to terms with that, that we do pursue equality and the right to marry. Uh, and so the fact that we haven't got there yet is incredibly frustrating. It is incredibly frustrating. But it's a little dangerous to suggest that that's because the parliament uh, and, and governments have not paid attention to the rights and interests of people with diverse sexuality or gender identity? I certainly wouldn't say they hadn't paid attention to it, uh, but the language of it, um, the care that went in, and I mean, in, in that sense, the reaching out of government, of the people certainly on that committee, to try and make religious institutions, private institutions, feel safe, uh, it didn't feel of equal weight when you look at some of the inconsistencies between state governments, particularly on uh, de facto same-sex relationships and, and so on. But the, 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 law, the, the committee report was um, broad and opaque because 
the rubber hits the road when you get down to the specific proposals. But part of what's driving a large part of this discussion has been what's been happening in the states and territories. Depending on which state you have, you have different anti-discrimination law and how that engages with the tensions, particularly between religious institutions. And uh, we, we know in, in you know, New South Wales, I think this law still is, that a child can be expelled because they come out of the closet for any private school, not just religious ones. Um, the same also is true of a premarital teenage girl, if, because inconsistent with, uh, uh, with, with the doctrines of the tenets of the faith of the institution. So um, how we deal with these issues is incredibly complex because whether we agree with how some faith-based traditions approach religion, they actually hold it very deeply. And I think there's far too much of a mischaracterisation that it's sincere or it's used just as a vehicle to discriminate against people they don't like. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the discussion about that specifically beyond saying that it does need to be taken very seriously. And there, this has been a constant threat of Australian public life. It's one of the few protections we have in the federal constitution is actually around uh, the ro role of religious liberty in society. Do you uh, both agree or, or you know, know what the numbers are in our parliament uh, on this? Terry? <laughs> well, I think, yeah. let me put it this way. Uh, if in bill, the lower house and upper house. If a bill was to be put to the lower house uh, and everyone had a free vote, then there's just no question that it would succeed. Uh, once a bill has, has succeeded in the lower house, I think it is very likely that it would succeed in the Senate. It is almost certain that it would succeed in the Senate once it had passed the lower house. But there are a few preconditions. The first is everyone having a free vote. Um, the second is a bill that everyone can actually live with. We've talked about the Senate inquiry report because it is important to talk about um, how to make sure that a marriage equality bill can deal with some of the concerns that have been raised about religious freedom, but also how it can also deal with making sure that the language isn't exclusive or that there's not additional discrimination inadvertently wrought by it through singling out same-sex couples in examples of exemptions from discrimination law. And so a lot of work had to be done to do that. Um, but the short answer is a bill would pass if people had a free vote. Um, what that's going to take, though, is people having the space to and this is really much more of a question for Tim than me, but the space to be able to do that in a way that is um, that brings people together rather than divides them. And that's really what's important. I share a slightly less optimistic view of the numbers in the parliament, but again, it, it's, it's a bit chicken and egg. You wouldn't get... Uh, the bill is very important for then if you decided to have a free vote, if that were to recur. Uh, and that by itself is not certain. Um, and there, even then, I generally agree that the numbers in the House say that it would pass. Uh, but again, it's conditional. The Senate is a bit more complicated. There, uh, you know, people have gone through the numbers and looked at them at different points. Of course, if a bill passed through the House, the pressure on the Senate would be much higher. But because... Uh, there are coalition and Labor senators who wouldn't vote for a change. Uh, I think the numbers would actually be quite tight. Uh, and you know, people have gone through numbers at different points in the past and said, well, the following people might even have to abstain in order to make it happen. And so I think there's this over-assumption because of public sentiment, and I'm sure sentiment from the people here tonight, that if you got something before the parliament, it would automatically pass. Um, because it's only just you know, one little vote away. Uh, I don't think it's that straightforward. And there are, I think, scenarios or, or hypothetical scenarios, because the last time I said scenarios, it was somehow interpreted that I was saying this is what was going to happen, and that's not what I'm saying, um, that you can get a bill, but the Greens wouldn't be happy with it. And that's what Terry was just talking about. Or Labor wasn't happy with it, or the Liberal Party wasn't happy with it. And so you, the challenge, and, and if you go back and look, I did a lot of work on this when I was Human Rights Commissioner, is trying to work with communities to get to a sweet spot. What is that sweet spot where we could get everybody on roughly the same page and say, even if we disagree, we're happy to live with this outcome? Um, and that's hard. 
um, because you are dealing with an issue that goes to the heart of people's sense of security in society. It includes a sense of security that myself, as an openly gay man, who's been in you know, a committed relationship for eight years and engaged for seven of them. Uh, this issue is very important to me personally. Uh, and it's, I'm sure that's true of a lot of other people in the room who may have even been there longer. But a lot of people feel that same sense of security about the issue and what they derive from it in the other side of the discussion. And I'm the first to concede I don't think I fully appreciate that, uh, but in the sense that I can quite understand it, but I do appreciate the, the sincerity of some people. Some people, of course, there will be who aren't sincere about it, but there are people who hold on to it very dearly. I'm reminded of the Republic referendum too, that you know you can have something where all the cards seem set for something, but uh, um, the, the wording and the, of course, leadership, uh, but it makes me think of our other former dear leader, John Howard, who, of course, incredibly savvily changed the Marriage Act uh, to, to include the words that marriage needed to be between a man and a woman. I think he did it in 2004 when this debate was... I think he was particularly influenced by... Uh, George Bush in America. No, no, is but, that... but the, the history of it, and I don't, uh, is there was a couple that came back from Canada who was married there, and the question was whether their marriage was legally recognised here. And a lot of people, I think, kick Howard on this decision. The, the reality is it was also supported by the Labor Party, we know that. Um, but the challenge was, at the time, public sentiment wasn't with us, it really wasn't. Uh, and if it hadn't have been dealt with by the parliament quickly, it might have then become an election issue, which, uh, irrespective of the party you're from, I don't think that necessarily would have been a good thing at the time. And then the other part of it was, if it wasn't dealt with by the parliament, it may very well have had to be dealt with by the High Court. And if it was dealt with at the High Court at that time, how confident are you of success? And I don't think you can say with that much confidence that you would have necessarily had a successful outcome based on the composition, the public sentiment and what comparable countries were doing at the time. If that hadn't have happened, though, if, if that event hadn't have happened and John Howard hadn't changed and the parliament hadn't changed that wording, wouldn't it mean that now this debate would be more likely to be taking place through the courts than the parliament? Or do you think, think we would have marriage equality? Do well, look, I think that's a, that's a very brave call to say we'd have marriage equality if that hadn't happened because mm. one of two things would have happened. You would have a parliament saying, we don't need to do anything about the Marriage Act. If the courts haven't updated their interpretation of it, that's not our problem, that's the court's problem. So it'd almost give parliament an excuse not to act on marriage equality and then you'd be relying on the High Court to construe uh, the previous provision as meaning that uh, two consenting adults can get married regardless of gender or sexual identity, of, sexu of sexuality or gender identity or sex sexual status. And so I think that that would almost, um, that sort of hypothetical alternative scenario is a little bit too hypothetical to give a meaningful answer to. Mm. Equally, it could have been, um, you know, there could have been an argument sooner that says we need to make the Marriage Act clearer and there could have been an argument made on the on the contrary that that was a more pressing imperative to act. But, you know, I think um, the point about what what the Liberal government did at the time is that it it's a reminder that it's actually Parliament's job to legislate for the meaning of marriage. And in that way, it's useful now because it was a very um, important discussion, I think, that we had last year about what is the role of a parliament in a democracy, particularly a parliament in our democracy that's been given power under the constitution to legislate in relation to marriage uh, versus um, the, the, you know, the idea that was put forward in relation to having a plebiscite, which um, has very, very important ramifications for this particular issue, but also for our democracy. You're really talking about what is the role of a representative government, what's the role of parliament, uh, what is the role of our system and should we change that in a way that uh, moves to a more direct democracy um, style of, of governing? And if so, um, then shouldn't we have a discussion about the values and benefits and possible disadvantages of direct democracy compared with what we've had in this country since Federation? Mm.
Tim, let us talk a little bit more about your experience of this as a as a politician and the only openly gay member of parliament from the lower house. Now, there's actually three of us uh, on the liberal side: Trent Zimmerman, Trev Reverends, and myself. And Julian Hill on the um, on the Labor side. Am I forgetting anyone? Okay. There you go. I think I there you go. Quadrupled my... Uh, <laughs> uh, as the newest, perhaps? No, Trevor no? and I are no. about the same time. Okay. I, I, I'm the only one who's uh, engaged. Right. So... That's interesting in itself. Uh, but it we'll is. talk they about... I haven't met the right guys yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that, but, you know... Oh, I, I thought you meant uh, engaged in the issue. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Let's talk about your maiden speech because it was okay. really good. And uh, you said you, you spoke... It was very emotional. You talked about your partner, Ryan, um, and you said, for seven years a ring has sat on both of our left hands and they are the answer to the question we still cannot ask. And I wonder how it... To tell us a bit more about how it feels when you come into Parliament, you are in a very safe seat... Uh, I don't it, think anyone could say that on any, any seat anymore. But anyway. Well, at, <laughs> what's at, your margin? 12.6. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, as safe as they get. Can we say that? I say it's a predictable seat in unpredictable times. Yeah, all right. Uh, very predictable. If things get any less predictable than Goldstein going to a Liberal, then we know everything's good gone people, completely crazy. But uh, <laughs> the good people of Goldstein. Uh, tell us more, though, about what, it was, what it's been like to come in as a new Member of Parliament with an issue that is both very personal but also that you have um, made so many comments about for so many years... Uh, what 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 pressure that that brings on you? What that what that is like? Uh, it's actually deeply uncomfortable at times, um, because there there are people who have lived this debate as I have, um, and because it's about our lives, and we've lived it from back when it was deeply unpopular to where it was popular today. But I'm the only person, and it's not to in any way big note the position who's gone from being an activist on the issue to actually potentially really being a legislator on it. Um, and that's not to diminish other people's contributions but uh, at all, but it's, it's quite interesting to have gone from both sides to argue it when it was unpopular all the way to potentially being the person who will be able to help decide the outcome. Uh, but part of the challenge then is you have to overlay, as we know, uh, a, a party position. And even more than that, I... I say it and I mean it. When I look at an issue, I think, what is good for the country, what is good for the community, what is good for the party, what is good for myself? And so if you just think about it strictly through the prism of self, um, you would say, of course, I believe very strongly in just going off and doing something. Um, but when you have to acknowledge and respect your party and your community, and the community one is interesting, uh, as well as country, uh, particularly the community one, I often have... People had a, a couple of weeks ago a, a, a Jewish man who was having coffee next to where I was having coffee at a cafe, and he said, we must have a plebiscite on marriage. And I said, well, I did actually vote for the plebiscite. And he said, I know you do. But is it important for me to have a vote on this issue as it is for you to see a change? And I know you don't understand that, but that's how deeply I feel about it. And it goes back to the tension that exists in the debate where some of us see it strictly as a legal debate. It's what does the law say and the role of parliament having the power to do that. But then for a lot of other people, and I'm not saying it's anywhere near 50%, it's not really a legal debate, it's a social institution debate. And if they don't feel like they're going to have their voice on the issue, uh, then... Um, uh, then they've been denied it and they won't accept the outcome, whether we agree with that or not. Now, I happen to like his lovely wife who's next going, yeah, yeah, he voted for it, leave him alone, uh, and was quite happy to sort of move the discussion on. But uh, that is actually how deeply people feel about it. Uh, and so it's very hard to live that change where you know that you're sitting next to somebody who wants to vote on your life and your relationship, and you know they're going to vote no. But they wish me luck... And then they tell you you're going to vote for you. 
it's, it's the bizarre contradictions of, uh, of this debate and how much people can both compartmentalise and separate out the issue. Of course, th those conversations would never have come into play if people weren't offered the plebiscite. It sure. was only because it was offered. If it had never been offered, I don't think you would have heard people out there saying we should get to vote on this because that's never been in our well, history. Well, that's not, that's not true, and this is one of the critical things. After the Irish referendum, the Greens talked up having a vote. Mm. And then uh, uh, Rodney Croom from Australian Marriage Equality talked up having a plebiscite. And Tony Abbott was the one who said, no, we shouldn't resolve these things by a public vote. And then it obviously switched, where everybody switched their position in a very short period of time. Everyone's crazy on this issue, though. I mean, <laughs> let's just be honest. Well, I still remember when Petty Wong was arguing with me and saying no marriage is between a man and a woman. Look, and, you know... <laughs> that happened. Yeah, it did. We, yeah. we have a conscience vote in our party, the party of binding, of solidarity, of... Um, of getting into a caucus room, fighting it out, and then coming out and all voting together because that's where our strength lies. We still have an individual vote on this. It's, it's upside down. You're all binding. You're the party of the free vote. You have a free vote on everything. That's what you claim. But you're, you're bound after the next election. Yes, because we are, <laughs> we are going back to our roots and our values, which is that we vote together because we're stronger together. And to be fair to you, Tony Abbott also, when he talked about the plebiscite, said that you would not be bound in the next term of the parliament, as in the term that we're in now. So you're not... Uh, on, if you take that, if you can take what, what you, the then Prime Minister says as being meaningful, you should not be bound now. Uh, the, the difficulty that you have is you've got Liberals who are Conservatives and who believe in institutions going out and advocating for a change to de direct democracy as though that's just something we should just randomly start doing now. Uh, and you've got, you know, as you say, the Greens were, were advocating for it as well. The fact is this is a squarely an issue of what does the Marriage Act say, which is squarely an issue for the Commonwealth Parliament. And so we should be able to get to a point where we can get a bill that people can vote for, and we should be able to have a vote. But that's really easy to say. What that takes uh, is for there to be the space created for parliamentarians to be able to do that. And so that actually takes a situation where um, you have uh, a majority of the House of Representatives being prepared to even have the vote in the first place. Now, that's the trick. That's the difficult part, because you need to have an absolute majority for that to happen. And for that to occur, you need to have a situation where the Liberal Party party room is willing to allow that to happen. But we're not going to get that by, I think telling your party that somehow you're all the devil and you should be ashamed and it's time for you all to go home. I think that we're going to get Wise. that <laughs> by continuing to have conversations and continuing to work through what the underlying objections are so that you can at least see whether there's some way of, of dealing with those underlying objections. And I think, you know, on the plebiscite point, I always disagreed with it, thought it was a bad idea. Um, as, as I say, not just because of this issue, but because of the broader ramifications for our democracy. Um, but to be fair to the Liberal Party, you took it to the election, you said you, had, you wanted a plebiscite, that was your policy, you came to the parliament, you, you moved for a plebiscite, the bill was defeated. But you've, you've, had, you've kept faith with your promise in the same way that I kept faith with my promise, which is opposing a plebiscite uh, and voting against it. So I think... This is... Um, what, what you're highlighting is the craziness because... There's not only all the other things that I mentioned, there's... Look, at listen, how often do you hear this? <laughs> uh, you know, MPs from, you know, with so much goodwill. And, I mean, one of the things that worries me about it... Um, I've had people say, don't worry, you just... You know, next time there's a Labor government, there'll be, there'll be marriage equality. And I, I, I don't necessarily agree with it. I think that times change, things change, the temper can change on things and in fact that's what we're all we're seeing in the world right now is the vibe is changing and it seems like a, a very um, difficult and dangerous time to be trying to talk subtly and intelligently and kindly uh, about an issue like this at the very time that we're 
it, it could be so easily slotted into the things that uh, the, the hard right... Well, to be fair to us, our commitment was marriage equality within 100 days. So had we won the 2016 election, we would have had marriage equality by October. And I think there is just no doubt about that, to be honest. We would have moved for it. Oh, I, I don't doubt that if Labor had won last year. But if Labor were to win the next federal election, whenever that is, uh, or the one after, uh, you, you can't know uh, how, well, how I, things... I hope two things. Uh, firstly, I hope we win the next election. But secondly, I hope it doesn't matter because marriage equality is already done by then. But, but I do think... Uh, I think you've hit a point, Sally, which is my view... I think one of the... Uh, I voted for the plebiscite because I wanted to honour my community. They voted for that, and that was a platform in which I was elected. But in the end, I find it very challenging that with so much confidence and so much of the justification that we can get change because of the high degree of public support, we turn down an opportunity to resolve this because the reality is it would be legislated by now had it gone to a public vote. Now, it would have been a difficult vote. I'm not pretending otherwise. It would have been ta uh, taxing on anybody who was affected by it and their friends and family. But social change always is. Social change is hard. And I don't agree with the idea, firstly, that it wasn't worth fighting for. It was worth fighting for. And I also don't agree, and I, I really, frankly, despise the response that some people gave, which is, we don't want a plebiscite, we're happy to wait. The idea that we are happy to wait for our rights in the hope that someday, in some point in the future, with benevolence, and this was put out by some LGBTI activists and the opposition leader amongst others, this idea that people can just sit back and wait because one day benevolence will be given to them by others. And not just that, that this doesn't matter and it's not urgent. Every time I go to a community event, in the gay and lesbian community, and people say, don't you realise that there are couples dying, families who, you know, where grandparents are dying and not being able to see their kids get married? And my response is, yes, I get it. But I wasn't the one saying we should be waiting. I was the one saying we should be fighting. And there were other people who said it too, but were drowned out because they said it will be too difficult. I have confidence in this argument. It's not the difficulty, I have Well, that's, that was it's the, the argument. It's the price, Tim. It's not the difficulty. It's the price you're asking people to pay. Well, I, The price is too high I think and they of, shouldn't be asked to pay it in the first place to have the same rights as everyone else. As a general proposition, I absolutely agree with you. But you've acknowledged yourself that there was the opportunity for a vote that was endorsed by the public to get this done. And is, was it my first well, preference? That wasn't my acknowledgement. Uh, well, you did acknowledge that we won it on an election platform. I acknowledge that was your platform and I acknowledged our platform, which was sure. to oppose it. You and held faith with yours, we held faith with ours. But we also need to acknowledge that we won the election. And the challenge for us... Well, maybe just, but we still won. But That's the reality. We everyone who won their seat won a seat, right? And so you won more seats than us, you got the bill through the lower house. But the fact is it was not able to pass the parliament. No, it was not able to pass the parliament. But I've consistently, and this is the, the point, it's, it was worth fighting for. And uh, I think a lot of the... And there's been a lot of misrepresentations of what people have said in this debate. Um, but calling and saying that it would automatically lead to suicides, I'm sorry, is not substantiated by the evidence overseas. And, in fact, what we know is that after... And now the re medical research is coming out of the United States, uh, that there is... a still to be completely substantiated evidence that once the law was changed there, that there's actually been a reduction in suicides amongst LGBTI youth. But that's a, yes, that's it would a have been a difficult debate, thing. but there is no evidence to suggest that that would cause suicide. The Tim, saying that once a law is changed, there's a reduction in suicide is not evidence for the fact that having a plebiscite would not have been harmful. And it wasn't just no, us. We were talking about the mental health issues. Yep. It was leading mental health experts who were doing that. They came out themselves and said it. And I think when you, when you think about the, uh, what, what you cited, the fact that there's been mental health benefits of having marriage equality, supports the proposition that exclusion uh, actually contributes to harming people's mental health. And so the idea that you say to a group of people, you are so excluded, you are so not part of mainstream society that you have to put yourselves to a vote of your peers in order to simply have the same rights as them is, in, is inherently exclusive and harmful. And I'm, I, not I don't I'm not disputing that. I, but saying 
there, there is a very important distinction between mental health challenges that were going to occur, and I agree with that, and that's why I always was supportive of needing to make sure there were support services, and where some people went, which was say, and people will commit suicide. Well, and I'm sorry, that is, there is no evidence, if you look at the votes around the world, to substantiate that. And it was, a, I think, a deeply misleading and inappropriate argument. That, that Run, argument aside, though, Tim, we, we can't yell out without a mic because we, we won't hear it in the podcast, sorry, but we're going to have <laughs> questions in a moment. Um, aside from that debate uh, that you're just having, for people to say, um, I'd rather not have the plebiscite and wait, there are, there are lots of other arguments about why that could be a legitimate point of view. And Terry, in fact, brought those up earlier in regards to our democracy and how it is that it functions. And are we, every time something's just difficult, are we going to just farm it out to a plebiscite uh, or a referendum, which is not so. There's been... There's plenty of things I'd like to have a, a plebiscite about. It hasn't been the, the enterprise tradition... enterprise tax plan being a good start, I think. <laughs> but but it, I don't it, think your $50 billion tax giveaway would get up in a vote of the nation's That population. is, in fact, the tradition in Ireland. It's a really important difference about Ireland. Um, is that, that the people are asked to vote on many, many issues. But in Australia, it has not been... And I would say that all that argument about health, mental health effects aside, and I don't think you can dismiss them by I, saying I the evidence is or isn't there, or, you know, that it, either way, that, that just on the grounds of our political culture and democracy, that's at least a... You said you despise it when people have that argument. The argument that people should sit back and wait, I do. I just need to make this crystal clear. I have consistently said I think that there would have been mental health challenges as a result of the plebiscite. But I, did, but I think saying that and then saying people will commit suicide, as some people said, was wrong and not backed up with evidence. The former was. The former was. I agree with that. But this was not, and I think it was. I think a... that the evidence shows that that exclusion is a contribution to suicide. That's certainly what um, mental health organisations have said, and I understand your concern about it. But I went to Drummond Street. People here would know about Drummond Street, I'm sure. Um, during the discussion, it's a it's a um, LGBTI service, health service. Just during the discussion of whether to have a plebiscite, and they were saying to us that they were having a massive uptick in the amount of calls for help, mental health help, mm. and I think that. You know, the fight over suicide itself is, is almost beside the point. The question of whether, what level of adverse mental health impact is acceptable to us so that we can get a fig leaf, so we can make a change to the law that we, should, that we know we should be making anyway, is a really morally difficult question. Well, it's a morally difficult... And saying, you know, it's okay because we'll provide people with help for the mental health adverse outcomes that we know they're going to have... And we're going to do all of this just so that we can find a way to legislate when we should do it in the first place. That's, that's the point I'm making, that it's a morally difficult question to say some people, a minority of people, should pay a high price to get the same rights as other people just because we don't have... For some reason, we have, been, we have failed to give effect to what we know we should have given effect to, and that's legislative change. And the problem I have is that in the meantime those same mental health consequences are occurring while nothing is happening. And if you go based on the evidence in the United States, once there was a change, there was a reduction in the, uh, in the level of suicide, so we haven't changed our law. So there are consequences either way. And the assumption was kind of made in saying, no to the plebiscite, people can wait, that there wouldn't be consequences. And I am very much on the camp of saying, no, there are still consequences. At least because when we got a yes vote, and I believe we would have very strongly, that it actually would have helped to address some of the past injustices because people would have been... Uh, a vote wouldn't have just been yes on the issue. It would have been, we are leaving this era behind us now and we can build a country where everybody feels they have an equal investment society and is equally protected. And the reality is that would have been a great day for our country. And I want to be clear too. I mean, our position was not let's not have a plebiscite, people can just wait. Our position was, let's not have a plebiscite, let's have a free vote now. We were really clear about that. Uh, we said that if, if we were unable to get marriage equality done in the parliament, then it would wait until we had a Labor government, but that is not anyone's preferred position. I want this to be done yesterday, and I think that most people in the parliament do. I think there's some people who don't, and they have been effective 
in blocking, but I don't think that there's anyone who supports marriage equality who thinks that waiting for the next Labor government is optimal. If you would like to ask a question, put your hand up and uh, if a microphone's put in it, start talking. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. Um, thank you, first of all, for having a very civilised debate on this issue. It's, um, it's appreciated. Um, I'm just wondering to what extent you think the issue of marriage equality might be a red herring in terms of other human rights that LGBTI people don't have equal access to, such as health and education and employment. We know that LGBTI people experience worse outcomes in all of these areas. While we're discussing the issue of marriage equality, are there other conversations that we're not having? Um, either of you. Uh, Dennis Altman has spoken yeah. about this very well, hasn't he? And he also mentioned uh, just to be a single LGBTI, <laughs> to not be in a relationship. Uh, there's a lot of oxygen that goes into one issue where there are many. Um, that's 100% true. Um, and, you know, it takes on multiple facets. You're right about health. Um, one of the biggest challenges and conversations that need to be had is around aged care. Uh, and what happens when people who have been um, uh, lived in same-sex relationships and then need to go into aged care, what degree of support and assistance is there um, to make sure that they're respected and treated equally in that vulnerable period of their life? Uh, as you said, issues around education, but I think Dennis Altman has also made the point, as have others, that uh, by comparison, in many ways, this is a, quite a bourgeois issue for to debate in a country like ours, while we're not spending anywhere near as much time talking about how people are being hanged in places like Iran because of their sexual orientation or um, uh, being stoned to death in, in other countries. And so, uh, but I do think it's a critical issue because it does in one sense break with an era of the past around the extent to which um, LGBTI people are sort of acknowledged versus actually being fully respected by the law. And that as a consequence of a change in law, it would lead to other constructive dialogues and discussions moving forward. So it's not a red herring, it's incredibly important. It's also a gateway issue to start new conversations that need to be had. I always worry about the proposition that because there are other forms of oppression, it's illegitimate to uh, seek to uh, respond to a particular form of oppression. So in other words, I think that um, that's often a, a tool used to delegitimise people raising concerns about um, their own circumstances or circumstances locally. You, um, uh, for example, people who say, well, we shouldn't try to help refugees because there are people who are homeless here in Australia. That's an attempt to delegitimise helping refugees. It's not really an attempt to uh, do more for people uh, who are homeless in Australia and it's just a false it's just false to say that you can't care about both issues at once and in the same way I think um, you have to if you want to make our society better for people who have been marginalised and oppressed then you have to tackle all forms of oppression uh, as I said earlier Labor and Government in 2011 amended the anti-discrimination legislation to include uh, sexuality and gender identity. When we brought in the Fair Work Act, we included a provision in relation to discrimination against people on the ground of sexuality for the first time. In the Fair Work Act, which is an adverse action provision that has a reverse onus of proof, making it quite useful um, for people who are being uh, treated adversely at work. Uh, that's not to say that the work is now done and that we've finished. I'm saying that there, is, there has been work done seeking to respond to forms of oppression and discrimination outside the framework of marriage. That doesn't mean that we can't also talk about marriage. Marriage is in a lot of ways quite symbolic and we shouldn't forget the power of symbolism. It's not enough. Symbolism is not in and of itself sufficient, but um, I was saying before that exclusion has real world consequences. Symbolic exclusion has real world consequences. Marriage, like it or not, is a fundamental institution within our society. I'm married, I feel quite, I feel, um, sometimes I'm 
uh, a little bit ambivalent about the institution of marriage, but I'm married myself, and I think that... Um, and I love you, Troy, if you're listening. Um, but I think that if you want to have a situation where you have societal institutions that exist, that do form part of the fabric of that society, then allowing them to operate in a way that's inherently discriminatory is wrong, symbolically and practically. And so I don't think it's a red herring. I don't, I don't think it's the only issue, not by a long way, but I don't think it's a red herring. Uh, good evening. My name is Graham. Um, I believe in equal opportunities for employment, sexual relations. Now we're talking about that. With this issue, one of the problems as I see it is the word marriage. Mm -hmm. Same-sex marriage. No, no, no. Marriage is between a man and a woman. What is wrong with proposing a, a bill called the same-sex union? You mention the word marriage to a lot of people. The end of it. Close their ears, close their eyes, walk away. I would propose same-sex union. Okay, so I'm going to pick up directly from where Terry finished off to answer that question because I hear it a lot. Because it's somebody said to me many years ago, it's a glorified trademark dispute, and they're kind of <laughs> right. It is. Um, <laughs> but the reason is not just because the word marriage has legal power and we know it does um, the constitution says it does it's that it has cultural power and that's why it matters so much because if you go to somebody else's civil union ceremony the reality is most people don't look at it like it's equivalent to marriage it might legally be the same but they actually don't recognize that they recognise it as a legal institution that doesn't carry the same weight as being able to say, I'm married, will you marry me? This is my husband, this is my wife. That leads people uh, uh, to understand the importance of the occasion. And I know people who've, who've had this in the UK who <laughs> had a civil partnership or civil union ceremony back when that was made legal. And, you know, people took a you know, vague interest and they're gay friends basically turned up. But when they got married, everybody turned up. Their families turned up because they got it. That's how important the commitment was and that's what marriage is. The other thing I would say though is you're right about using language because uh, one of the things I do and you know, I get in trouble in certain sections of the community but it's very deliberately done is I talk about marriage for same-sex couples which some people argue is exclusionary because it doesn't deal with trans issues and I accept the criticism of that. Because when I go and talk to particularly groups that are opposed, if you use the term marriage equality, they switch off like that and they turn against you very quickly. Uh, and I've had this experience. I once went and did a, an event with ministers of, uh, ministers of religion, pastors in the Defence Forces. And I kept using the term marriage, same-sex couples, and made the conservative and the religious case for why the law should change. And somebody actually got up at the end and said, throughout this entire thing, you have never used the expression marriage equality. And I said, yes. And they said, why? And I said, because as soon as I say that, I know you switch off. Because you think the debate is rigged against you. Because you already believe that all marriages should be equal. And you think the language is designed as a trickery to try and con the argument in, your in my favour. And they acknowledge that. And I think... Uh, uh, while it's good to talk about talk in the language that people who agree on the issue um, support, you also need to understand where the alternative perspective is to successfully communicate. Sorry. It's so interesting, because uh, it also, what that language difference is doing is it's, it's still othering same-sex couples. It's, it's saying we're other rather than equal. Well, well, no, and that's why I use that very ex deliberate expression. I, I never I use get it. I get term same-sex marriage or gay marriage because we are not debating a new institution. We are debating the one that, that is, in many ways, the bedrock of our society, and we are seeking to open up the opportunity for uh, all people to be able to access it who are in um, committed long-term relationships. And... Uh, uh, Speaking of another word I despise, I don't like people talking about gay marriage because, as people often make the remark, you know, you don't have gay breakfast and the like. 
Sorry, Terry. Oh, no, I agree. Uh, hi. Just drawing first from the beginning of the discussion where you talked about um, the Senate recommendations to make persons who might be opposed to this feel OK. Um, I'm all for protection of vulnerable individuals, but I'd say, firstly, that um, those persons aren't the most vulnerable, and the most vulnerable persons are actually who it's about, which draws to your second part of the argument where you talked about um, the ramifications for plebiscite. So, uh, pulling all that together, what things should the parties and the parliament and the government be doing to actually protect the most vulnerable persons as this debate continues, whether that be in the form of a plebiscite or as parliamentary debate? So I don't accept the characterisation that we're trying to make people feel okay. Um, th this is, uh, for me, I, I see marriage equality as a question of human rights. And giving people, affording people the same human rights as the majority is very important to me. Uh, I don't think human rights are something that should really be conferred. I think that really should, Parliament should acknowledge that people have the same human rights uh, regardless of their sexuality or gender identity, and that fixing the Marriage Act to reflect that is very important. Um, but equally, I think people have a human right to religious belief or activity that's worth protecting and, and valuable. Now, again, just because people have those rights uh, doesn't mean that they have equal capacity, ability or power to exercise those rights. And it goes really to the question that was being asked earlier about is this really the issue or should we be much more worried about more practical forms of exclusion in relation to employment, health and education? Uh, and I think that really is the issue. When you talk about oppression, uh, is not only giving people the same, affording people the opportunity to have the fact that they are entitled to the same human rights, um, not only doing that, but also then looking at what the impediments are, the structural impediments to people being able to actually live uh, a full life with the same dignity as anyone else. And so, you know, obviously I'm a Labor Party person, that's why we're so preoccupied with inequality, uh, not just inequality between people of diverse sexualities and gender identities, uh, but also other forms of inequality. It's why we're so preoccupied with income and wealth inequality, for example, because real impediments to full participation in a democratic society include the fact that some people are too busy trying to afford to pay all their bills and not get evicted to worry about whether they've got the same human rights as other people. It's also a reason why we are so preoccupied with health and education. It's why you hear us campaigning so much uh, on some of the concerns that we have about the future of healthcare and education in this country. Uh, so I think um, in terms of the question, there's a rights framework around protection of people's particular human rights. Uh, but then there's also the real and equally important question of what do you do about oppression and discrimination wherever it's found. Uh, so in terms of who's more vulnerable, I don't think having a competition to see who's more vulnerable is ne necessarily the way to conceptualise it. But I do think that trying to build a society where there is more equality, where there's less inequality, and where people have opportunities and where people have assistance uh, that they need in order to fully participate and live a life of dignity uh, is what the focus of government should be. Obviously, minus the partisan component, I agree with the yes. sentiment. I tried to um, be as, as mild as I could. <laughs> um, but, but just to finish it on, human rights uh, are not about simply who is the most marginalised in the community. Human rights are about everybody, and everybody being equally respected by law and enjoying the equal protection of the law. When you get into an intersection around things like sexual morality and religious freedom, it's, it's enormously complicated, and that's basically what was acknowledged out of the Senate report, trying to get a position and a design in law that respects how those two different... It's not just identities, but components of people's lives. And I, I do think we significantly downplay um, to our detriment the role religion does play in people's lives because it shapes how they see and interact with the world. Um, but you do need to give equal protection for that as well. Religious liberty has always been part of the human rights dialogue uh, and continues, needs to continue to do so. But what it doesn't do 
just as the rights of LGBTI Australians don't trump those of others, religious liberty doesn't automatically trump the rights of LGBTI people as well. We have to wind it up. I'm so sorry. There's so many things I still wanted to ask. Uh, but I, I think you've given us an amazing sense, well, me anyway, I think, tonight, uh, of the... Frustration? Oh, the frustration. <laughs> yeah, at least you share it, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and some of the, you know, more nuanced difficulties, I suppose, of all of this. It doesn't make me want to stop from giving the Prime Minister a big, you know, belting of, you know, make it happen. Uh, but we're not living in that particular universe at the moment. Uh, and, and so I think, and I suspect the two of you do, that this issue will be resolved uh, in the way the three of us would like it to be resolved sooner or later. Do you think sooner or later, Tim? I, I think I'm like most of the Australian public. While I, uh, I'm actually quite sick of this debate, mm. is the honest truth. Um, and not because I don't have deeply held commitments to it, because I've always been at the view, you know, I, I had an argument with John Howard in 2007 about how I thought this should be resolved then, and my view has not changed. I would have liked to have been resolved back then, uh, let alone today. So I'm definitely in the sooner camp. Sooner? Sooner. Sooner. <laughs> as soon as possible. Thank you both for coming and uh, particularly coming down from Queensland. It's Pleasure. just been terrific. Thanks for having us. It's been lovely. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this fortnight in the Fifth Estate. To find more perspectives in the marriage equality debate and to find more episodes of the Fifth Estate podcast, visit wheelercentre.com. You'll also find listings for dozens of live events, including the taping of our next episode. Coming up next in the Fifth Estate... Former editor-in-chief of the Australian newspaper, Chris Mitchell, joins Sally for a conversation about media partisanship. Until then, take care. Listener.